You've probably never watched a live coronation ceremony, I'm talking about a coronation ceremony, of a king or a queen. I bet never live, maybe recorded. Unless, and last I checked, none of you are well above 70 years old, because the last one was 1952. The first one you're likely to see live happens in two weeks. Beginning of May, when King Charles is officially crowned king, king of England, succeeding his mother, Queen Elizabeth, who was last crowned, 1952. The royal coronation has some of the same elements we actually just read about. Has the anointing of oil, swearing in as the head of the Church of England, a formal liturgical service, music, Formal dancing, because English don't get crazy. They just dance a little bit. And paparazzi and more. But what does this coronation likely not include? Bet you, when King Charles is sworn, he doesn't expect to suffer. Doesn't expect to give his life for the ransom of those in England. Definitely not for the world outside of England. Or to gloriously rise on the third day. And so you'll probably sense a ton of irony when Pope Francis is reported to have gifted King Charles supposed strands of the crucifixion cross of Christ. It was given to King Charles and those in England. I'm I'm really not joking. This is CNN and Reuters both reported on this. He's given shards of the crucifixion cross. A king who certainly won't and probably doesn't want to die for his people, probably, probably doesn't care as much about them as they think he does, doesn't want to die on behalf of those who hate him, especially not those who hate him, was presented again by the Pope, you think, of all people, the shards of the cross of the one who did. It's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of ironic. The same irony isn't lost in John 12. When the coronation of Jesus as king of his people, you and I, who confess his name, leads to the glory, not of a human throne, but his glory is the cross. That is where he receives his glory. By every human standard, Jesus' reign was an absolute abysmal failure. He didn't do what they thought he was going to do. Take over Rome, establish his kingdom, Take things down. It's not the glory we think of it. In John 10, or in John 11, Jesus is confessed as the Christ of God by both Mary and Martha, raises Lazarus from the dead, which we saw again in John 12, and is rejected. That's the last part of John 11. Rejection by the Pharisees and the scribes. Here Jesus is recognized as the rightful king, the heir of David, but his reign is not marked by human glory. He's not given the anointing so that he can go successfully to the king's chair and reign. He goes to the cross. That's his chair. That's his glory. He's recognized as the rightful king. His reign is is actually began by suffering. That's That's how he becomes king, as he suffers. We're going to see this in three points. At first, 
is the anointing of the king, John 12, 1 through 8. You could say the question is, what does Jesus' kingship mean? Second is entry of the king, John 12, 9 through 15. The question here is, how was Jesus' kingship recognized? And lastly is suffering of the king, verses 16 and 19. How do you become part of this kingdom? How do you recognize this kingdom? So the good news is, Jesus is suffering in your place that you might be glorified in his place. He trades you. I'll give you glory, and I'll suffer. We're going to begin with point one, anointing of the king, verses one through eight. So notice, notice how this begins. Verse one. He begins, it's not a passive comment. He's like, oh, by the way, it's six days until the Passover. As if that's kind of a throwaway comment. Just like, just how's the weather? What's the time? He's telling you, we start the last week of Jesus' earthly life right now. This, this begins, the last 11 chapters of John, telling you what's going to happen. Right away, John reminds you of what Jesus did in the previous chapter. He says, where... Lazarus was, that's Bethany, this is kind of like his home base of ministry, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, because John is going to talk about this again. It comes back, you guys heard this at the end of John 12. Preparations for the Passover feast, they're in full swing. It takes about a week, if not longer, to prepare for the Passover feast, which is the last day of the festival. So the beginning of it, not the actual festival, but preparations for the festival. And so Martha's getting things ready as both Lazarus and Jesus recline at the table. And think of this scene. He who was dead, Lazarus, who's sitting at the table, was dead for four days, raised by Jesus. Now where, he, where, where does he sit when he's feasting? He gets to sit with the king. He gets to sit with the one who just raised him. He gets kind of a foretaste of what you and I get, looked for, get to look forward to is our heavenly feast. We will enjoy not just earthly, we'll enjoy heavenly feast with Jesus. It's kind of foretasted here. Lazarus is raised, and now he feasts with Jesus. And, and randomly, you got to think of this. Put yourself in, in their shoes. Mary comes around and starts anointing Jesus. They probably don't know what's happening. It's, it's, it's random. I mean, really, it looks, this looks out of place if you were either Martha or Lazarus. You're like, why is Mary taking really expensive ointments and placing it on Jesus? You're enjoying a meal to prepare for the annual Passover festival, the biggest one in the Jewish calendar, and one of the women of the house comes over, again, this is not what usually happens, with tremendously expensive oil, which would have taken months of income to purchase, is poured onto the feet of Jesus. First, women don't touch men, especially if they're not their husband at this time period. So something's different, something strange is going on here. And this is especially odd if you know what kind of ointment this is. This pure nard was used throughout the Old Testament for two things. The first that would have come to the mind is anointing of a king. That's what it was used for. And so when they're looking at Mary, it's like, that's for kings. 
and you're putting on Jesus. They're thinking, is, is, Jesus, the, is Jesus the king? And secondly, it's used for preparation for burial. The two places that it's most profound. It's like, wait, this is for a king, but also for a burial. These, these two things don't normally match up together. And 1 Samuel 10 and 2 Kings 9 talk about this preparation for kingship. Where this was placed on the head. Placed on the head of the next coming king, the succession of David. But also for burial. I mean, I mean really, this, this oil was used to anoint the king of Israel as a servant of the sovereign king of all. To perform the task set out for him. This, this oil is that you're, you're the one. You're, you're the king. Do what Yahweh has told you to do. To serve his people, to assure the temple was sacrificing rightly, and pronouncing the law with the prophets. And adds to this is Song of Solomon, especially 1 verse 12. Where the author says, well, the king, well, there's actually the woman in the poem. Well, the king was at his table... My perfume spread its fragrance. Because she's anointing the king. She's talking to a Solomon-like king, and she, who represents the church, the synagogue, is now anointing the king at the table. It's the same scene we just see in John 12. The song written from the perspective of the king of Solomon to this woman who, throughout the book, is so strikingly compared to the temple. We see this in person in John 12. All these allusions point to two things. They may not have totally understood this at this time, but we see this now. Jesus is being anointed as the king who's going to die. Not as the king who's going to reign earthly, but who's king who's going to reign through death. And where on his body is he anointed? Where are kings anointed? They're anointed on the head. Jesus is not anointed on the head. Where is he anointed? On the feet. It's, it's kind of random, though. It's like you missed by like six feet. It's supposed to be on the head. Now you, just, you miss it's on the feet. Unless you've got in the back of your mind that first gospel promise. Remember the first gospel promise? Genesis 3.15. I, God is speaking, will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman... And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's what they're talking about. That's why he anoints, or why she anoints the heel. She's saying, that's the serpent crusher. You're going to crush his head. And you're going to crush it while getting your heel bruised. And so I'm anointing that very thing that leads to your death. And then leads to your glory. It's, it's really remarkable, if you think about it, that the Bible gave this place to anointing the king, to a woman, and society that didn't care about women. No place. None whatsoever. You've probably heard or said for yourself, you've probably heard this more likely, Christians suppress women and their rights. They don't care about them. They're backwards. They're behind the times, on the other side of history. 
when really no religion has ever lifted up women to the heights that Christianity has. The one, again, given the task of anointing the king, is the woman. It's, it's really not Christians who are backwards on issues of women or women's rights. It's, it's really everybody else who's backwards on this. They had no rights in court at this time. They rarely, if ever, worked. And their witness was almost never accepted as testimony in the court. But Mary prepares Jesus for his reign. This oil then continues to permeate the house. It was not just anointing him for kingship or burial. It permeates the house, filling it with its sweet aroma. If you know your Old Testament really well, this should remind you of something. It mirrors precisely what occurred when Yahweh descends down upon the temple, fills it with his glory, and the priests can't stand in his presence. They have to get out. Or they burn incense to kind of have a little buffer zone between the cloud of glory, this glory cloud. But they don't leave. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus sit with Jesus. Now they can enjoy the presence of their king. They can stay with him. And Judas wants nothing to do with this. Outwardly, he seems really concerned about the poor. Really concerned this money could be given to the poor. But really, his hand always finds itself in the money bag and back into his pocket. Jesus knows what Mary is doing, what she's really doing. Even if Mary is not fully sure the king of the universe is being prepared to enter his glory through death, through burial. And he's got to be anointed, not by a priest, because he's not in the human line of a priest. He's not of a human Levitical or Aaronic order. Can't be succeeded by a human priest. He has to be outside the priesthood. And so he's anointed by Mary. You've heard what Jesus' kingship means, but how can you recognize it? This brings us to point two, entry of the king. And starting at verse 9, notice, notice how the crowd comes in. Do they come in first and foremost for Jesus? What does it say they come into the crowd for? So they come in because they heard of what Jesus did. Again, not initially for Jesus, not because they see the coming king. They say, oh, you're the one who raised Lazarus. That's why they come. And too often is the case throughout John's gospel, too often the case with our own hearts. And throughout redemptive history, it's like, oh, you did, Jesus did this for you? Let me talk about that instead of let me talk about Jesus or let me see Jesus or hear about Jesus. Maybe you like hearing stories of what Jesus has done how he's changed people's lives and, and worked wonders, but Jesus himself, maybe you like debating Jesus, debating with other people who you think are really wrong about Jesus. But Jesus himself, maybe a little less interesting than debating about Jesus. Maybe you like heady theological conversations. I do. And if you're honest with yourself, arguing in the comments of YouTube videos is a lot better than actually reading the Bible than hearing what Jesus has done. 
I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to myself as well. Maybe posting really aesthetic photos, which is not something ideal. But posting really aesthetic videos, just perfectly placed in your Instagram photo, or your Facebook photo, a well-placed coffee mug next to it, just a perfectly open Bible, nice smooth pages, good, good coffee wafting up. And then you take a photo and you're like, oh, I'm reading about Jesus. But actually communing with Jesus, different thing. What do the Pharisees seek? What do they want? What are they looking for? They want to kill. I mean, the scene, it couldn't be more shockingly juxtaposed. Jesus, who raised Lazarus from the dead, who's now alive, is now sought to be killed by the Pharisees. Two completely different responses to Jesus. But why? What do they see in Jesus they don't like? Here's a case when seeking reputation or a personal following of influence supersedes the call of Jesus. Outside of Jesus, it really is rather paramount. If you don't believe in Jesus, you've really only got one choice. Build yourself up. Build up your reputation. Build up your legacy. Whether it be how many kids you have. More kids I have, the better I'm following the mandate. Maybe it's the newest gadget you got. This is going to make me happy, finally. Maybe the size of your house. More kids, bigger house. I'm doing this thing right. The zeros in your paycheck. Yes, sure, I'll give to church, and I'm going to do all these other things too. How much money you give to philanthropic agencies, you feel good about the stuff that you give. I'm, I'm making lives better for other people, therefore I feel better. Because the constant refrain rumbles in your head and it aches. You say, do more or they're going to forget me. Do more or they're going to forget you. My reputation is going to be lost. I, I will no longer be remembered. If you're a kid, maybe you don't want to stick out. Or if you do stick out, you want to stick out like everybody else sticks out. I don't want to be different. I don't want to be moved from, But if I am different, at least I'm different like they're different. Where being an influencer is now one of the top three jobs a kid wants to be. An influencer is literally somebody who gains a following so that they can keep that following and sell things to their following. It's, it's your reputation. The more you build, the more you do, the better you are, the better you feel. Probably right now you wonder if that video, parent or kid, you wonder if that video or picture you took has gotten enough likes on it. Whether it be scripture, quotes, anything. Got enough likes and maybe you feel good about yourself finally today. This has always been the case. The Pharisees are not the only case. We have this in our hearts too. It's just different gadgets. And for the Pharisees, they needed a following. Or else everything crumbled. And you might feel the same way too. So they need to get rid of Jesus and Lazarus. Or else in verse 11, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Because they can't have that happen. If we lose our following, we lose our temple. If we lose our following, we lose our worship. Or this is what they thought was worship. But how do the people, 
seemingly a, a mixed group from all sorts of different places and backgrounds recognized Jesus. And you see it in verse 13. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. They point and say, that's him. There's the king. He whom our heart has longed for has finally come. We see him with our eyes whom we'd heard before. And these palm trees that lined the entrance, you can say, to the eschatological, it's what's the end of times, end to come, temple. That's what these palm trees line. They, end, they line the end temple in Ezekiel 40. It's the entrance to the east of the temple. It's what all of these palm trees line. They're using this to point to the temple, to point to the temple in the flesh. They cry out, Hosanna, which is Psalm 118, 26 to 27. Which, if you know Psalm 118, that's a temple psalm. So when they go up to go worship. It was sung regularly by Israel on their way up to the mountain to temple and praise Yahweh. And when they say Hosanna, they're looking at Jesus like, you're Yahweh in the flesh. We praise you. And King of Israel is not from Psalm 118. It's from a mix of both Hosea 3 and Zephaniah 3. But both use that to explicitly call out the deliverer who's Yahweh, but a different person than Yahweh. So they recognize Yahweh, but you're the second person of Yahweh. You're the second person of the Trinity. You can say, like Jesus. So all that to say they recognize their king by them crying out Hosanna, they say, Yahweh, Jesus, you are our king. So Jesus in verses 14 to 15 sits upon a donkey. But that's not normally what you expect a king to come in. Kind of expect a big war horse coming to take down Rome. But he goes into a donkey, sits on a donkey. You can kind of say it's, it's like a modern day Honda Civic. Not a Ferrari, but a Civic, just a humble, humble little Civic. But if you know your Old Testament really well, and especially your kings really well, you'll recognize this donkey. Like, I've seen that donkey before. It's what a coming king in the line of David rides into Jerusalem in Zechariah 9. The prophet recognizes, or the king. The king will come on a donkey. But it's also what Solomon writes as he's crowned successor of David in 1 Kings 1. He rides upon a donkey into Jerusalem, recognize you're the king after David. So Jesus, by riding upon the donkey into Jerusalem with the people flanking him with palm branches, is saying, I'm the king of David. I'm the king of Israel. I'm the coming one whom all the scripture prophecies have pointed towards. That's me. The king sent by Yahweh who is Yahweh. And I don't come for human glory. I come to suffer and then for glory. You've heard what kind of king Jesus is and even how to recognize him, how he shows himself. But how does he bring you into his kingdom? 
How do you get in? This brings to our last point, suffering of the king. You've you got to love Jesus' disciples. You've got to love how the Bible presents them. It's so comforting knowing that you and I don't have to have everything figured out. Our theology doesn't have to be perfect for us to be saved. It just has to be pointed in the right direction, grabbed onto the right person. Because they're slow. And you and I are slow. Verse 16 says, The disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Which means at this moment, they did not know what was going on. That's comforting. You don't have to have it all figured out. Yeah, it's just grabbed on the right person. That's what enters you into the kingdom. They, they, couldn't put their, they couldn't put their finger on it. Something's happening, but we, we don't know what. But then the proverbial, you can say, a light bulb was lit when Jesus was raised. That's when they realized, oh, that's why this happened. That's how he was proclaimed. That's why he had to suffer. That's the kind of king he is. That's when they realized this king suffers in order to be glorified, not seeks glory for himself, which is exactly what Jesus doesn't want to do. He obeys toward suffering and then glorifies his father and glorifies you. You could say, unlike King Charles' upcoming coronation, Jesus' coronation was capped with suffering. Unlike every other religious leader in history who looked for human glory, who are measured on how much did you do while you were on earth, Jesus came not to be glorified, but to suffer and then to glorify. He didn't seek earthly fame. He didn't see, he sought rather, the fame of his father, and he sought it through obedience and shame. Basically, every other religious leader outside of Christianity sought their own glory. They built their reputation. They glorified themselves. Look how good I did this life. You can do this too. They say, do what I did, and you can get the same glory. Every religion outside of Christianity, that's what they say. You can say personal glory through the hard work of doing. The more you do, the better you do, and the closer you do to them, that leads to glory. If you don't have glory, it means you're not working hard enough. Or it's treated kind of like Buddhism. Suffering is. Where suffering is more illusory. It's not really real. As long as you can think in your minds, I'm not going to try to react to this. That's how they look at suffering. But we as Christians know suffering is real. It's not a lustry. You don't have to forget about it. You can go through it. And that's how Jesus has entered his glory. He is real about it, and he went through it. And he went through it for you and I. When the disciples remember that after Jesus' glorification and resurrection, that's when they realize the grave gave him glory. 
So the crowd who were at the resurrection of Lazarus in John 11 recognize his kingship, and they begin proclaiming Jesus. Say, this is the king. Believe in him so that you can enter into his kingdom as well. But the Pharisees look at each other, likely with faces covered in worry that they've just lost their people, and they tell themselves, "Uh uh-oh, the world's got after him. We're done. Not every single being, that's not what world means. It's not literally the entire world has gone after him. They're not talking about every single piece of the earth. They're basically saying every kind of person has now come to Jesus. We're done. Now we've got to worry. For Jesus is not the king of a specific people group. Not just one people group. Which That's what the Pharisees were. Just the Jews. That's all they worried about. But Jesus is the person, is the king of everybody. Of every people group. Of everybody, of every kind, every shape, every background, every ethnicity, all tribes and tongues and peoples and nations you hear all throughout Revelation. That's the kind of king he is. Yeah, not like the king of England, who's just the king of England. You get Jesus, who's the king of all peoples. The Pharisees accepted specific people who stayed really good. Jesus only takes those people who say, I'm really bad. It's a kingdom not marked by really cool, really nice, really big people. It's a kingdom marked by, yeah, I've never obeyed. And I never will. I need somebody to obey for me. That's the kind of kingdom that's marked by. And that's the kind of king Jesus is. The king who doesn't order his people around, but who dies for his people. The king prepared not for a triumphant entry onto a human throne, but for suffering and a place on the cross. Not... I'll leave my throne so that I can go to the cross. But my throne is my cross. That's how I'm glorified. The king who pays for the disobedience of his very people that are in his kingdom by living a perfect obedience, a perfect life, and giving you that record. Not a king you'll never meet. A king far off in a land who runs your life and you never meet him. A king who doesn't know your name. A king who lives an opulent lifestyle, probably at your expense, who expects a lot of money without doing much for you. Or imposes roles that he doesn't have to follow, but you have to follow. He's the king whom you will meet, and you will meet face to face. Who knows your name right now and will call you by your name in heaven, saying, Welcome. To my kingdom. Welcome to your kingdom. Who was made like you, died for you, and rose for you, and lived under the same law, both for you that you broke. The king sent not first to rule, but to live a life in complete submission, to then raise you up and to rule with you. Not rule over you. You rule with him. You're giving a spot in this kingdom. Not just as a person in this kingdom, but yet you're co-rulers with Jesus. Not because you earned it, but because you were given it. 
You get to reign with him. That's the kind of king that Jesus is for you. Let's pray. Lord, you have sent us a king not like other kings. Not a king who rules over us as a blind, uncaring sovereign who just imposes upon us rule after rule after rule after rule. And we're scared that we can't stay in this kingdom. One who's paid every last penny and then given us his fortune, a fortune that never ends. We enter into this kingdom through his name, through his suffering towards glory, not just a glory unmarked by suffering, a king who knows us, a king who knows suffering. Well, that is the kind of king you have given us in Jesus. That is the kingdom that we live in currently and we will one day see with our eyes. We hear by faith now and we will see physically we enter into his kingdom in heaven. We thank you, we praise you, all this in your son, his name, Jesus. Amen.